Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We often focus on this program on great power competition. So you've gotten used to hearing conversations about US-China competition, about Russia's war in Ukraine, about geopolitics, economics, trade. But I want to do something a bit different this week. I want to take you all the way to the northeast of India to a tiny state called Manipur, which has just 3 million residents. Manipur is burning. This small, often forgotten part of India bordering Myanmar has been the site of deadly violence between its two biggest ethnic groups, the majority Meite and the Kuki minority. Since May, more than 130 Manipuris have been killed and tens of thousands have been displaced. Churches and temples have been destroyed. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi remained silent until a shocking video emerged last month of two Kuki women paraded naked by Meite men. Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, is currently in power in the state, led by a Meite politician, Chief Minister N. Biren Singh. The violence in Manipur exhibits troubling signs not only of ethnic conflict, but also of state failure, with local police seemingly unable to stop the violence. And despite the conflict's shocking nature, it has gotten relatively little media attention. So I wanted to learn more, and I thought you might want to listen along. I sought out two people whose opinions I value. Barkhadat is a longtime correspondent and anchor in India and runs the video channel Mojo Story. She's been reporting from Manipur this summer and has some really vivid stories to share. And Sushant Singh is a former Indian Army officer who now teaches at Yale and also writes about defense issues for foreign policy. The two have different routes into observing what's going on in Manipur, But put together, they're able to shed light on a very troubling story that just isn't making the news out here. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. You can do that too by signing up on foreignpolicy.com. You can also use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let's dive in. Welcome to you both. Barkha, let me begin with you. So I just want to start with the basics. What is going on in Manipur right now? Let me put it like this. It's one state formally, but effectively, it's already been divided into two states. And the distance between the valley where the Maiti people live and the hills where the tribal Kuki population lives is separated by a road journey that does not actually take more than 50 minutes. However, today, If you belong to one community, you cannot travel those 50 minutes into the other region and vice versa. At the front line of villages deep in the interiors of Manipur, especially villages that uh, are one community bordering on the beginning of another community, 
you have fortified bunkers where men who were once paddy farmers whose conversations were about pineapple and rice are today patrolling their villages armed with guns. On the other side, you have school-going children as young as 16 and 17, also in rifle pits with handcrafted sort of cannon-like guns, spending hours there instead of going to school or you know, attending class. And you have almost 60,000 people on both sides living in relief camps. You have an estimated 4,000 weapons, including high caliber weapons in the hands of civilians. You have a police force that has lost both authority and credibility. And you have a swirling national political debate around all of this. Sushant, uh, this begs the question, the scenes Barca is portraying seem so vivid, um, they almost sound like a civil war. How did we get here? So essentially, the trigger for the current crisis was a judgment by the Manipur High Court, where it asked the state government to grant reservations in jobs and educational institutions to the Metei community. This you know, caused anguish and anger among the minority community, which is the Koki community and the Nagas. They brought out some kind of protest. And in response to that protest, the Metei community unleashed a, what I would call is a torrent of violence against the Koki community. And this was clearly supported by the state's chief minister and the state police force. And the first few days in, in May, that is the 3rd, 4th, 5th May, the violence was really you know, very, of very high intensity. And a large number of people were killed. Large number of people were rendered homeless. People, people chose to go to Myanmar from, from Manipur to, to find refuge, to stay, to find a safe place to stay. And the crisis, the reasons for the crisis, of course, that this was the trigger, but the reasons for the crisis lie in a narrative which has been created where the Mitei community has come to believe that they are the original inhabitants of the land and the cookies are essentially interlopers, people who have come from foreign countries, from Myanmar, who are not Indian enough. And this has to do with the pressure on land. 54% of the population of the state is Mitei. They live in 10% of landmass. You know, 18 to 20% of cookie population, you know, lives in forested areas, which is much larger. But these areas are protected by India's constitution, where other non-tribal communities like the Metei cannot go and buy those lands. So essentially, it's a question of identity. It's a question of sons of the soil. It's a question of pressure over land. It's a question of government jobs. And all that narrative has come together and created a situation uh, where things have just blown up around 100 days back. Sushant, you used an interesting phrase there. You said not Indian enough. Can you just explain what, what does that mean? So because this state borders Myanmar and Bangladesh and because the Kuki community or the larger Kuki Zo ethnic tribes, they stay both in the Indian state of Mizoram, which adjoins Manipur, but also in Myanmar, the Chin community, which is being targeted by the military junta in Myanmar, also happens to belong to the same ethnic group. So, uh, so the allegation is that a large number of these cookie community members have actually come from Myanmar because they are being targeted there and they do not belong to this land. They do not, they, this land does not belong to them. That is perhaps not true because cookie community fought a war against the British colonial rulers in the, in the 20th century and has lived there for a long, for a long period of time. But that narrative has been created that they have come from Myanmar and they do not belong to India. Barkha, I was struck by the scenes you were describing of two states with 
teenagers wielding uh, sort of makeshift rifles. I mean, this sounds like state failure. Give us a sense of how this is playing out and what is the role of local police, state police, and, you know, the army and why it doesn't have more of an involvement uh, in this as it's playing out. So first about the police, uh, if there's any any one issue uh, on which both of these communities agree on today, both for their own reasons, sometimes very different reasons, believe that the police has failed them. Every survivor and every family of, of victims that I met on the ground in Manipur uh, basically said the same thing. The police was there, the police did nothing. The viral video that you referenced, a video in which two women were um, paraded naked, one of whom was brutally gang raped. I, um, I spoke to the husband of uh, one of the women on that video. He, by the way, happens to be from the Kuki community, but an army veteran of, uh, of 28 years. And he told me that they, they were police. Police was there when this video was filmed, when the assault on his wife and the other lady took place and the police just decided to do nothing. And in every instance, that is the testimony that we have encountered that the police has been unable to intervene with effectiveness, either from incompetence or from bias. We don't know which and in different instances, the reasons could have been different. The army, uh, the army is in fact uh, involved, Rabi. Uh, the Assam Rifles, which operates directly uh, under the Indian Army, has played a key role, not just in rescuing uh, people into shelters, into relief camps, but also in creating some sort of community conversation at a time when the state government has no authority whatsoever. But unfortunately, and this really tells you what a disturbing phase of the conflict we're entering, the army is now being pulled into this ethnic strife with, with one community, the Methi community, actually targeting the Assam Rifles, which is operational in Manipur, and accusing it of bias. And we've had instances where women, and women, remember, have been both victims as well as frontline agitators in this conflict. So we have instances where women are flagging down army convoys, asking soldiers to show proof of identity, and letting them through only if they do not belong to, let's say, the tribal community before letting them go ahead. At the other end of the spectrum, you have women who are saying, army is welcome, but we won't let the police enter. And you're having all of this happen in a state which has a 400-kilometer border with Myanmar and China next door. We'll get to Myanmar and China in a bit, but Barkha, again, this begs the question, why, why not involve sort of the national army? Why just the local army? Well, I think the the assumption is that the that this is a central force that is perfectly capable of handling the situation, and I think it is quite unprecedented for the army to have issued a public statement, which it had to do in recent days, uh, to to underline the fact that that they are operating without fear or favor, to deny allegations of um, of prejudice. The police has, in one instance, even filed a criminal case against the army. So, you know, I think this is. There is the human suffering, but there is also the national security question, and both are intertwined at this point. When you have the legitimacy, the objectivity of the army question, when you have soldiers flagged down by civilians to offer proof of identity, uh, I think you're talking about an eroding authority of power, of governance, of institutions, of administration. The army had managed to retain credibility in all of this, but as the strife enters its fourth month, 
even the army is being dragged into this sort of finger pointing as it were between the two communities mm. Sushant, talk us through the role of uh, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, in this as it plays out. Um, They're the party in power in that state, in Manipur. They're also, of course, the party of Narendra Modi, the country's prime minister. Um, How does that play into the way in which this, this is being perceived locally in terms of politics, in terms of uh, the states, you know, whether the state is trusted or not, whether the state can act or not. Uh, before that, Ravi, just a word on what Burkha said about the army. As as a former army officer, uh, I spoke to a few friends of mine who are in Manipur, and the and the always the uh, the uh, the one point that they always made was that the rules of engagement are not very clear, and the political directions being given to them are rather unclear. They really do not know how far they can go in whether in dealing with these women protesters or in dealing with other other groups and the political leadership in the state is making it extremely difficult for them and coming to your question the political leadership leadership in the state is essentially from the bjp bjp won the elections in the state marginally in 2017 and since then has been re-elected in 2022 and the chief minister former congressman n birain singh continues to remain continues to remain in power in his first tenure between 2017 and 2022, he was a chief minister of the whole state. You know, he was regularly visiting cookie areas, dealing with them, inaugurating hospitals, gymnasiums, you know, community centers, seen as a leader of the whole state, not only of the Metei community. He belongs to the Metei community and the Metei community politically dominates the state of Manipur. Out of the 60 seats in the state assembly, 40 seats are essentially controlled by the, by the Metei community. 10 by the cookies and 10 by 10 by Nagas. Post his re-election in 2022, something seems to have flipped where he came with a greater majority. Since then, he has recrafted himself as a leader of the Metei community, of the majority community. You know, with the kind of language that he, that he has used against Cookie, even the kind of tweets that he did which from his Twitter handle, which were then subsequently deleted to call them narco-terrorists, to call them outsiders, to say that, you know, all these uh, fed, the Indian federal government had a ceasefire agreement with these Cookie milit- militant groups, that this should be done away with, the state, his state government would not be a party to it. The whole narrative has somehow flipped and shifted in the last year and a half. And it is believed that the government of India, Mr. Modi's government, wanted to sign an agreement with the cookie militant groups and give them some form of an administrative arrangement uh, on the 8th of May. And it was, and Biren Singh, the state chief minister, as a leader of the, as a de facto leader of the Metei community, was opposed to it. And therefore, uh, it is presumed or it can be, it can be surmised that he chose to you know, instigate some form of violence to ensure that that kind of separate administrative arrangement under the sixth schedule of Indian constitution was not made available to the cookies. Uh, So the situation in the state, the role of the BJP as a majoritarian party in the state, as a party of the Metei community, not being a party of all the communities in the state is not very happy and and is not very healthy scenario. We must not also forget that cookies are are majorly Christians while Metehis continue to now have come under the Hindutva fold, they may have started as a Sanamahi faith, which is an indigenous faith, but now more and more they are seen as part of the Hindutva ideology and of the, of the Hindu faith. So this is not a Hindu versus Christian conflict, but there are definite religious undertones to, to this. And that's that certainly has consequences in today's India, the way today's India is. 
Barca, how does this play out? Because both of you are painting such a disturbing picture of so many instruments of the state standing by uh, or being complicit in the violence and in not really doing the best they can to stop it. How does this play out? What state or national institution could play a role um, in either mediating or easing tensions? Just before I answer that, uh, you know, I just think it might be useful for our audience today to understand the enormity of human suffering. Uh, you know, I mentioned child combatants. I mentioned farmers with guns, uh, women's bodies being used as battlefields. But I also would like to talk about families I met in the tribal community uh, whose daughters were, according to a police complaint, they filed uh, raped tortured and killed. They used to work as, they were young women in their 20s, we used to work at a car wash in the city. And um, their bodies have been lying, like many other families, in the hospital wards of the city in Imphal for over three months. And my question to these families was, has anyone called you to offer at least to bring your dead home? And they said, no. And these are very poor people. And and I said, you know, do you have a lawyer? And they didn't. And, you know, we connected them then to a lawyer. And in another instance, I met a, a man whose 84-year-old mother who, who lived in Imphal with him. He escaped thinking the mob would not target his mother because she was so old and she couldn't see and she couldn't hear, but she was killed. And he hasn't been able to bring his mother's body home. And again, we're talking about a 50-minute drive. You know, bodies aren't being ferried from point A to point B because of a dispute over where the burial of these bodies should take place. What might be the institution that, that, that can transcend the divisions? If you'd asked me this a few weeks ago, I would have said, I think the, the army has credibility, but every other institution in the state has collapsed. Uh, today, I think as Sushant mentioned, the army is extremely concerned. It doesn't have the legal cover of what's known as the Armed Forces Special Powers Act in all the areas of Manipur. In effect, it means that for the army to use force, it needs a judicial magistrate to travel with it every time it's deployed so its soldiers do not get into legal complications later. Obviously, this is not a very practical way to operate. So the army is also being tentative. And the other most complicated thing is armies know how to act when the adversary is external. When, when you have your own people fighting amongst yourselves, the army can be a holding operation. It can maintain peace. It can rescue people. But it can't provide the solution. And personally, I believe, and it surprises me that this has not happened, that the Birin Singh government should have been sacked. The chief minister should have been asked to go. And there should have been central rule in the state by now. Why that has not happened, I have no good explanation for it because it seems extremely counterintuitive because it seems like the only option left to even begin rebuilding um, these broken relationships. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Sushant, and just uh, going back a little bit, what is the role of the so-called war on drugs? Because I think that also seems central to um, how this chief minister has sparked tensions or brought us to this point. 
Uh, yeah, so definitely the, the fact that this is located in what has been known as the Golden Triangle of Thailand, Myanmar, uh, where, where drugs tra drug trafficking is internationally very high and, and is one of the biggest transit points for supplying to the world. So the kind of drug that we are talking about is essentially poppy, which is grown in the hills of Manipur. Now, this is one big grievance that the Metei community and the chief minister have, that the Koki community, using the privileges that they have and the rights that they have over forests, are using are misusing those privileges to grow poppy because that's a commercial crop and that makes them a lot of profit. When you talk to the Koki community, they say, we only grow it. All the control of the business is with the Metei community and with the people who are politically well-connected and very powerful and supply this uh, the, the poppy product on the poppy produce to the uh, to, to other countries and allow them to be smuggled to a, a, other countries. Uh, it's a grievance, which is a very serious grievance. Everybody acknowledges that poppy is grown in Manipur. Everybody acknowledges that poppy is grown in the hills of Manipur. But who controls that poppy cultivation and the business of smuggling? That's something which is uh, disputed uh, very, very, very heavily, very strongly. Uh, Ravi, going back to the previous question, which which Barkha answered, I think the template for with which the Indian government has historically dealt with such crises, whether in Kashmir, whether in Punjab, whether in Nagaland, whether in Mizoram, has been very clear. You remove the state government when it becomes biased and partisan in its actions. You replace it with a credible governor who's directly controlled by the central government. You bring in the army, remove the biased police if required, disarm the local police, and start building bridges between communities through political activity. And the first step towards that has to be the retrieval of these weapons that Barkha referred to. You know, nearly 4,900 weapons, 5,000 lethal weapons. This includes mortars. In no time in India's history in last 75 years has any insurgency, has any group used mortars. I've spoken to enough senior officers, retired officers. Everybody tells me this is the first time in independent India's history that mortars are being used, light machine guns are being used, AK-47s are being used, MP5 Uzis are being used. More than 630,000 rounds of ammunition were taken. Unless you bring those weapons back, there is no way you can bring the violence down. You know, you may temporarily suppress it, but it can then go up at any point in time, spike at any point in time without bringing those weapons back. And I think in today's times, the state police clearly, whether for whatever reasons, out of bias, out of incompetence, you know, out of uh, political pressure, is incapable of undertaking that act. That act, that action will have to be taken either by the army or by the other federal forces like the BSF, CRPF, and this requires a security grid. So this is a whole pattern which India has gone through in many states. There would be a security grid, there would be a security advisor, there would be a centralized command, they would directly report to the federal government in Delhi, and there would be instructions passed, there would be intelligence agencies that would operate, and you would have you would bring the violence down and then allow a political process to be reinitiated. By allowing the state chief minister Birensing to continue and not allow and not giving clear directions to the security forces, you have created a very difficult situation for everyone where violence is not coming down, weapons are still available with people, and people are firing at each other across a kind of a Maginot line, across a buffer zone. You know, the area that, that Barkha referred to between Chura Chandpur and Imphal, the state capital. Now the central government, the federal government in India is saying that we would allow a helicopter ride so that cookies can actually ride to the only airport in state in a helicopter because they cannot secure the road. Now that's you know unprecedented. That's not something at least I have heard of for a 45 minute journey 
a helicopter ride being provided by the federal government with 75% uh, subsidy. That's something extremely unusual and extremely distressing. Uh, and that reflects very poorly on the Indian state uh, as it happens to be functioning today. Barkha, I mean, all of these descriptions are just of complete state failure. Um, I mentioned that this story isn't getting much attention in the West. Is it getting much attention in India? I would say uh, the only time it got a kind of focused national media attention across platforms was after the video that showed the women paraded naked surface. That is what compelled all of the media to take notice. That is what compelled the prime minister to make the brief comment that he did outside parliament. That is what started the opposition demanding a debate in parliament and opposition delegation traveling to Manipur. And, you know, I always compare this moment with another state that, you know, Sushant and I are both familiar with, which is Kashmir. And I remember a, a time when there was a lot of internal turmoil and you had these young men on the streets and, you know, more than 100 were, were killed over a period of time. And an all-party delegation actually traveled to the state. And, you know, you had this moment where your politicians were ready to say, okay, we're not going to play electoral politics with this one. We'll bury our differences from now and we'll all go to Kashmir. And it is, I do not understand why we haven't seen a gesture like that. Uh, the other thing is that everybody you meet on the ground in Manipur wants to hear from the prime minister. That is the other, that is the only other thing apart from the role of the police that both the Metis and the Kukis will tell you, where is the prime minister? We want him to come. Uh, some even say, even if he comes and reprimands us, you know, there was a soldier, a retired soldier of the army. He said, let the prime minister come and tell me I'm really badly behaved. Let him be the father figure of the country. Let him come and scold me, but I want him to come. Why doesn't he come? And this we hear repeatedly. The, the, the home minister has been a, sort of trying to negotiate uh, you know, some sort of solution. He's the one who gave the detailed response on the floor of the house. But the people of Manipur want to hear from the prime minister and they want to meet the prime minister and they want him to visit and they're upset that he hasn't done so thus far. Is Barkha, is the northeast of India seen somehow as peripheral, um, not only for the media, but in terms of policy making for New Delhi? Well, in terms of electoral politics, the state of Manipur has two members of parliament. I think it, it you know, the story might have been very different in terms of the attention it got, gets both from the political class and us in the media if it had many more members of parliament and it could swing the outcome of elections. So that's the first sort of mea culpa that, that we have to acknowledge. Um, I just also want to say that neither of the members of parliament spoke in, in, in the debate that took place. So this is a really strange thing that you have two members of parliament from this small, tiny state. And, and one of them I interviewed later and he said, he's actually a Naga uh, and, and he said, and he's an ally of the BJP. And he said, I was advised not to speak. So it's a very strange um, sort of situation where yes, I think we have to acknowledge that this is going to have a spillover effect on the Northeast. Ironically, the Modi government has prided itself in making the Northeast a focus. In fact, they've always said, this is what distinguishes us from the previous government. For us, this is a priority. We have insisted our ministers go there regularly and so on. So it becomes even more ironic that, I don't think the government, by the way, thinks it's a peripheral issue, but I'm not able to understand why there isn't more visible intervention. I'm sure there are all kinds of things happening behind the scenes, all kinds of attempts. I know, for example, the home minister, while I was there, intervened to ask the tribal groups to stop their plans to hold a mass burial because he said there'd be a fresh 
cycle of violence that will start. So I'm not saying the government is not concerned. It patently is. But what I don't understand is why there aren't more visible interventions that the people of Manipur and the rest of India can see. Sushant, do you have a take on that? Oh, yes, definitely. I think uh, Manipur is psychologically distant from what is popularly known as the Indian heartland. Most people, actually, many Indians, most Indians would not be able to place Manipur on a map of India, where Manipur is and how is it different from Mizoram and uh, how all these states are. That's why they're clubbed as India's northeast uh, altogether. Uh, beyond the psychological distance, I, I believe that the internet ban, the very strong, harsh internet ban, which was imposed in Manipur the moment violence broke out uh, on 3rd of May, also helped suppress the news and kept it uh, away from uh, especially independent media platforms, even if I were to say that some of the corporate media platforms and India's television channels, uh, for various reasons of political compromise, may not be wanting to broadcast it. Uh, but most of the independent media platforms, like the one where, where, which Burke has started, would have wanted to cover it. But for the fact that the news was just not coming out, it's also physically distant, it's not easy to travel to Manipur. And of course, uh, it's psychologically distant. That did make matters worse for the state of Manipur. For those not familiar with internet shutdowns, I just want to point out um, it's basically the state's ability to shut down uh, the ability to access the internet at a very micro level. It could be a street, it could be a state, it could be the entire country. And India has more internet shutdowns than any other country on earth, um, including uh, you know countries that have been at war, so Afghanistan or Syria. Um, and this has been the case for the last decade or so. Sushant, just to continue on that, uh, and I want to start taking some subscriber questions. Um, David Camru from Sciences Po in Paris wants to ask you about the implications of what's occurring in Manipur for the civil war in Myanmar, um, especially in neighboring Chin, um, and for the Modi government's, what he says, what he calls a cozy relationship um, with the military junta in Nepido. Yeah, so the uh, so this is one of the critical areas. Uh, the the Modi government is uh, it, it has a very close has very close ties with the military junta in Myanmar, and the military junta has been bombing aerially bombing the the Chin rebels who are fighting against the military junta. Now, as I said earlier, these Chin rebels share the same ethnicity as the Kukizo community in Manipur, and there are very very close ties between the two communities. A large number of people, a large number of Chin people have come to Mizoram and some of them to Manipur. The bulk of them have gone to Mizoram, but some of them have also come to Manipur. Similarly, around a thousand people have gone from Manipur into, into Myanmar because of, the shared, because of the shared ethnicity. So there is a spillover of the crisis between Myanmar and India. And this spillover is not just only in terms of ethnicity, it is also in terms of India's ability to create infrastructure projects uh, as part of the Act East policy that Mr. Modi talks about between India and the ASEAN countries. So there's a highway which has to pass through Myanmar and to go to Thailand from India. That has to pass from Manipur. There are other infrastructure projects, you know, multimodal projects that have sit multimodal projects that have to take place. Now, those projects cannot happen, cannot occur if the situation is so tough and, uh, and so difficult in the state of Manipur. Uh, also, the fact that because of these shared ethnicities and these overlapping boundaries with a very free border, very porous border, it is very difficult to target uh, you know, it's very specifically target or control the situation. People can always flow from one side to another side of the border, depending on how the situation is, and then respond to it. It also leads, uh, you know, the to a situation 
where the majority community, the Meitei community can make allegations that these are not people from India, these are people from Myanmar, or the people who are undertaking violence now or are defending themselves are not Indians, but have come from Myanmar. This We have already seen this happen, where the state chief minister, Biren Singh, has actually gone and gone out and alleged that these people who are undertaking violence are coming from Myanmar and are not from uh, within the state. So it's a very complicated situation, and India's uh, very close ties uh, with the military junta in Myanmar make it even more difficult and more complex for India to deal with the internal situation within Manipur because of its cl close ties uh, with, with the military junta. Barkha, many of our subscribers um, want to know whether this crisis is going to impact Modi, uh, his standing, whether it dents his chances in next year's election. And I want to add on just a little bit of a layer to that, which is that, you know, if there is sort of a conventional wisdom about India and the West, it is that a... Um, you know, Modi tends to win national elections, uh, come what may, and B, that uh, as U.S.-China conflict uh, or tensions intensify, um, countries like India are set to benefit and that India increasingly is seen as, you know, a place where a lot of multinational companies will want to do business, um, that it's on the up, uh, so to speak. Do you think any of those things stand to be dented by all of these very clear signs of state failure, of potentially state complicity? Uh, it's not a good look, uh, even if it isn't getting out that much. But I think, as Sushant mentioned, there is, unfortunately and tragically, a kind of psychological distance, an emotional distance between you know, many people uh, across the country and the Northeast, in this case, Manipur. The video broke that distance, right? Uh, it is actually uh, interesting, for lack of a better word, I'm using the word interesting. It is ironic that uh, it is a video that changed the course of the story and how it was perceived. And the reason the video was able to do that was that even if you were a woman especially, who did not understand in particular who the Metis are and who the Kukis are, but you saw that these women, and all of us have seen the video, though a lot of, obviously we couldn't show the video because you couldn't identify the women, but everybody has seen the video. And so you had people who don't understand geopolitics, who don't understand Manipur's unique history or its composition of Metis, Kukis and Nagas, saying, oh my God, this is, this is horrible. And overnight, you know, you saw the government actually swing into action, issuing a very brief statement, but issuing that statement, right? Uh, so I think the video broke that distance, but that doesn't mean that every day people are looking to see what happens in Manipur. I think I think we have to be honest that that the challenge for us in the media is is how to keep people engaged with this very very critical situation in one corner of our country. I do not believe it would impact the prime minister and his government electorally. I do, however, believe that for a government that has always defined itself by its nationalist credentials, by a strongman prime minister, by the fact that in Kashmir, for example, the government is arguing in the Supreme Court that our decision to take away the special status, look, there's an improved security situation. This doesn't fit in with the government's self-image or its projected image or its projected credentials as a tough guy government that doesn't brook turmoil and ha you know has the capacity that a weak-kneed Congress didn't to contain internal strife. So I think 
despite it not having electoral consequences of any significance for the Modi government, I believe the government for reasons of, of image, both self-image and external image, cannot afford to have this carry on, uh, uh, you know, maybe those simmer, yes, maybe, maybe if there are no sort of eruptions of violence, they'll say, okay, it's a simmering low intensity conflict, maybe that, yes. But if it effectively remains these two broken states where even the the military is now being pulled into the dispute. I don't think that's a that's something the government can afford. That's personally my opinion. But when I say cannot afford, I don't mean electorally. I think I'm cynical enough to recognize that I don't think there are any electoral consequences for the Modi government because of what's happening in Manipur. And I should point out, Barkha, the video we've all been talking about was was about an incident that took place in May. It only happened to emerge in July. Um, so there's a huge time lag there, which goes to speak of the immense um, information gap we're all facing here, uh, partly through the internet shutdowns. I, I, um, and can I add to that, that the, that the families in all of these cases believed in the system. They all went to the police stations and they filed what are called first information reports, a criminal complaint with the police. And in every instance, there has been no action uh, on those complaints. In this particular video, finally, when there was such a furor, overnight, they were able to arrest seven people, like in 24 hours, which begs the question, what was happening in those three months? The, the FIR was filed in this particular case, if I'm not wrong, on the 18th of May. And nothing moved till the end of July. And I should point out, of course, out of respect to viewers uh, of, of this broadcast, we uh, too are not showing the video, but you've heard us refer to it and much has been written and said about this video as well. A truly shocking uh, incident uh, and a shocking video as well. Um, Sushant, you know, as you've been writing about um, this in FP over the last couple of months, you wrote that this is a conflict that could have impacts on India's border with China as well. Um, expand on that. Uh, so one of India's uh, mountain divisions, which is around 15,000 soldiers, 15 to 18,000 soldiers, was posted in Manipur. But when the border crisis with China began in the summer of 20, 2020, in, the, in May 2020, this division was pulled out of the internal security duties in Manipur and moved to the China border. On, in the in the eastern sector. So it was part of the larger defensive deployment that Indian military has done after the crisis with China with, with, the Ch with China began on the border. It was a reserve formation but provided uh, you know a certain kind of uh, ballast to the defense to the defensive formations which were which were moved forward. After the violence began in May uh, this year, around three months back, this formation had to come back and these 15 to 18,000 soldiers had to come back and again start start focusing on maintaining internal security within Manipur. Now, that is not a healthy scenario. It definitely weakens, or at least you know, the Indian, Indian defensive posture against China does not remain as robust as it was earlier. So it's not something which is critical or would change the dynamic, but it does not help India's case against China. Also, if there's internal strife in Manipur, which is already spilling over to Mizoram, which is already spilling over to Myanmar, is already spilling over to Nagaland because of shared ethnicity, because of shared, relig shared religion, this instability is going to consume a lot of resources of the Indian armed forces and the Indian political leadership, making it more and more difficult for them to look outwards to the challenge that is coming, coming, coming from China. This cannot be a healthy scenario at all. And these are the two aspects which make it very important for the Indian state, for the Indian government, 
to quickly deal with the crisis and not let it linger. The Indian Army, have, with its commitments in Kashmir, cannot afford to remain deeply committed in the Northeast once again while the crisis with the China border is on. And just to put it in context, the fact remains that when the border crisis with China began, India had to reorient a large quantum of its forces away from Pakistan onto the China border. So it is not that India has surplus forces and can do anything with those forces. The fo it's already tied with those numbers and it really needs to focus on China rather than looking at maintaining internal security in a place like Manipur. Barkha, I'll close with this. Um, our, one of our subscribers, Anish Estevez, wants to ask if there has been an American response to this at all. Um, and I'll just add to that by asking you, would it even be effective if any other country or any other international body tried to intervene as a journalist who's covered all of you know this and other conflicts in the region for so many years now, Barca, what do you think the rest of the world can do? I mean, I smiled because I remembered that the new uh, American ambassador did actually, in response to a question, said, we are the American ambassador to India, that is, we are avail available this to, is Eric to, to help. Yes, uh, I, I'm I'm paraphrasing him. I don't remember his exact words, but we're we're ready to help if India wants. And it created an enormous backlash. I personally think that every time this issue is raised, if it's raised by another government or by the European Parliament, I think it has the opposite impact. Um, I think it gets into a kind of a whole different debate about who are you? Why don't you look after your own backyard first? You have this, you know, you these are your areas of strife. These are your areas of rights violations. Why are you lecturing to us? We are our own people. And I, I, I know that everybody doesn't agree with this, but my own feeling is that you have to leave it to, to Indians to argue amongst ourselves uh, and hold our people in power to account. Now, um, the unfortunate part with Manipur is that the media will very quickly move on to the next story. And then if it falls off the headlines, how do you keep it in focus? But I don't think the answer to that is externalizing this and, and looking you know, to having any power outside of India offer comment or intervention of any kind. Well, uh, Barkha, uh, I hope that you at least get to keep covering this the way you have on Mojo's story. And I urge everyone watching and listening to this um, to follow Barkha's work there and also Sushant Singh, who writes for FP regularly in addition to other work that he does. Barka, Sushant, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. And that was Sushant Singh and Barka Dutt joining me from New Delhi. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That is it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. 
everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.